Hello and welcome back to another fine episode of Popcorn Digest. I'm your host Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time dwarf tosser, little throwback there, Andrew Raphael. We are the knights who say, ni. <laughs> and for this week's episode we're trading meowful musicals for high fantasy as we're discussing all things Willow. But is this a George Lucas triumph? Or should we have watched Strange Magic instead? <laughs> Find out after the trailer. Oh god, anything but that. I know. <laughs> I'd rather watch How the Duck ten times than that. It was a different time. It was a time of destiny. A time when a child could tip the balance between good and evil. With my powers, with the strength of my great army, can you not find one little child? A time for an unlikely hero named Willow. Tell her I'm not gonna let anything happen to the baby. We gotta get that baby to somebody. I'm somebody. A time of scoundrels. What goes on here? Uh-oh. And a time of rebels. You are great. So if you've seen The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, or taken a cursory glance at any fantasy novel from the past 60 years, then Willow is a film you have no reason to watch. <laughs> Warwick Davis stars as Willow Ofgood, a not-hobbit that must go on a long and dangerous quest. Joined by his not-fellowship, Willow must take an important baby from his home in Not Hobbiton to the walls of Not Mordor, where he will cast the baby into the fiery depths of Mount Doom, where it was once made. I uh, think I may have confused my fantasy films there. No, you're pretty much spot on. <laughs> <laughs> so, for this week's episode, we will be reviewing Willow, a film that's been long on our list of films to review on the podcast, and it was actually mm -hmm. chosen by yourself, Andy. Yep. I'm going to ask you, why are we discussing Willow today? This is a, a long-standing, anticipated episode for us, because it's the only film off the original Best Forgotten Movies poster that we haven't done. Yeah. And uh, we originally planned to do it after our Titan AE episode. I actually cut that out at the end of the uh, of the episode that was broadcast. But uh, the plan was to finish on Willow and then have a break. And That's we right, never yeah. did that. So uh, we're doing it now instead. <laughs> <laughs> Better late than never. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I take it, is this your first go with Willow? I know from experience with yourself anyway that you do know your fantasy movies. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a guess to say that this isn't your first time watching Willow. No, I think I've been aware and known about willow pretty much since not that long after it was released um yeah. it was released in 88 i can probably remember as far back as maybe even 89 that's when my general memory begins it's one of those films that's kind of always been around it's a bit like the goonies in that respect you know when it was always on telly yeah it's kind of lumped in with indiana jones and everything for like christmas telly in the early 90s yeah i reckon it's about 25 years since i've last seen it Wow, yeah, so it's a, really a blast from the past for yourself then. Yeah. I, I mean, I will say I have a very 
similar experience with Willow. I watched it when I was very young. I think I was around five, maybe four, when I first actually seen the film. I actually had the experience of it being hard to get hold of for a while. I I wanted to Mm. watch it again, and I couldn't find the VHS. And I do remember it was from back when you used to get VHS released on very limited editions. So you'd only get a very short window of how long that VHS would be released for, and then it would go back into a vault. I know that Disney kind of spearheaded that whole release template. So I actually struggled to get my hands on it for some time. I remember putting it on my Christmas list a couple of times and never getting it. And we actually came across (laughs) a copy in a charity shop one day for 50p. All right. And that's how I came to own Willow on VHS. I have seen it a few times over the years, but I would say that the last time that I watched it was, I would say, around 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I will say as well, just to say that this may have coloured my viewing of the film as well. I actually watched it with my daughter, who was around the same age as I was when I first watched Willow. And so Mm. it was something of a heartwarming and nostalgic experience. But I will say that it wasn't enough to paper over any cracks. Well, I I had a completely different experience. I, I watched it with my wife and she's never seen the film. Oh, right, yeah. I mean, she's a little bit younger than me, but yeah, we were watching it with the point of view of being uh, full adults now, I can say. Yes. You know, I generally don't feel like that. <laughs> At least physically so. Yeah, but had a um, a marked effect on my viewing experience. Yeah. And I would say my experience of Willow since seeing it as a child has been more down the visual effects route through reading books yeah and watching documentaries about ilm and things like that there used to be an amazing ilm book i think there's a couple of ilm books that came out in the early to mid 90s that featured willow heavily and i've also got a george lucas book so for quite a long period of time that was my only contact with willow as a property well i think as we get into the film you've come to realize why the legacy of willow's visual effects have lasted and yet the uh, legacy of its story has not no before we begin really jumping down that path of what we truly thought about the film i think it's important that we do lay down some context just so our audience know when this film was released and how it came to be essentially so I've just been doing some reading online about Willow. One of the first pieces of information I had was that Willow was originally conceived around 1972 when George Lucas was coming up with the ideas for the likes of Star Wars and he was looking for mm-hmm. something that was more fantasy and young audience related, really. And it was originally called Munchkins. <laughs> I'm so glad it doesn't have that title anymore. Yeah. And it wasn't until the shooting of Return of the Jedi where George Lucas approached Warwick Davis with the idea for Willow. How old was Warwick Davis at the time? Was he like 13 during the making of Return of the Jedi? Yeah, something like that. And he offered him the lead role of Willow, which is strange to offer Warwick Davis, a 13-year-old, the role of a character that has a wife and two kids. Yeah, I'll (laughs) go into that a little bit later anyway. And also, just to have confidence in somebody who... I think Willow was his first speaking part as well. He'd never done anything without wearing a costume. He'd done, by that point, three films playing Wicket. Yes. Jedi and the the two Ewok specials, which we've already covered in a past episode. So this was on a completely different level for him doing this film and leading the film. I will say that I do like that this film does provide people with dwarfism a role in which they don't have to slather themselves in makeup and costume and hide themselves within that type of nonsense. I do appreciate that it is a fancy film that just allows them to be people and that is one of its greatest successes for me. Yeah. That's what sets it apart. Yeah, it's like equal opportunities hobbits. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Because I do feel like as well with 
how technology has changed over the years and how it has got better looking at the way that all of the Lord of the Rings films were made in regards to making that scale that's completely taken rolls away yeah it's destroyed that type of yeah it's basically reduced them to doubles because that's what they were in in lord of the rings wasn't it exactly yeah and not really acting so to speak but more so as you mentioned just as doubling and long shots and really just as glorified extras i think it was one of the biggest open castings for little people of all time actually willow yeah and it's about 200 to 300 little people on the set it's a very big deal in terms of that community of actors. It's definitely something that I imagine is fondly remembered by all. Yeah, of course. I think it's a um, really a tribute to them as well. And I will say that mm. Lucas intended it to be a more, like he said, it was the little guy taking on the system in a more literal sense. That was Lucas's yeah. idea for this film by casting those actors as well. And that's probably the best idea he had for the whole film. <laughs> yeah, I would say so as well. <laughs> that's probably the only original idea he yeah. had. For the, <laughs> for the entire film. So Lucas had actually waited until the 80s for the technology to catch up as well to where he needed it to be to make Willow. And he approached Ron Howard, who was making Cocoon at the time. I think it was in post-production with ILM. Mm -hmm. And Ron Howard, fortunately at the time, was look or unfortunately, depending on how you look at Ron Howard and his filmography as well. <laughs> he was um, in post-production on Cocoon and he was looking to do a fantasy film as well. So they came together quite well, and Ron Howard obviously has that long-standing relationship with George Lucas because of their prior work on American Graffiti. How do you feel about Ron Howard as a filmmaker, Andy? I would say professional, but nondescript. He's definitely a workman-like director. You never get a sense of his personality No, with any of the films he's done. I would probably say my favourite film of his is still probably Apollo 13. Apollo 13, yeah. Yeah. I feel similarly towards Ron Howard. I will say that he reminds me of a composer, and I will say it's the composer that works on this film. In very many <laughs> ways, he reminds me of James Howard. Uh, sorry, James Horner. James Horner. Oh my God. I wrote James Newton Howard. J James Newton Horner. James Newton Horner. <laughs> so in many ways, he reminds me of uh, James Horner, because mm. James Horner is a composer that he really irritates me most of the time, but every now and again, he will put something together that really just knocks it out of the park. Mm. And Ron Howard is like that as well, because I feel like a lot of the time his films feel like they're just treading water. They're not incredibly interesting. They normally look fine and are professionally made, as you say. There's nothing overtly terrible about them, but they just feel a little mundane. And every now and again, he'll it'll be like perfection will come together and something like Apollo 13 will be the result. He's a filmmaker that I wish I could see more passion from in his films. Because I always find them just a touch on the cold side sometimes as well. Like uninvolving, I would guess, is the, the word I would use to, to describe a lot of his films. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the worst of the worst, you would only have to look at the likes of the Da Vinci Code trilogy. What What's it called? The Robert Langdon. I, I actually watched yeah. the Da Vinci Code just the other day as well. And I... I, I was I was laughing throughout that, but it's just so dull and plodding. Isn't Inferno the low point, though? Yes. I've never had an interest to see any of those films, to be honest. But uh... I've seen all of them. I, <laughs> I believe that the <laughs> Angel and Demons ended with a priest skydiving out of a helicopter over Vatican City to escape from a bomb. That says everything that you would need to know about that film. And yeah. Inferno was just aggressively boring and bland i think that's just down to the the source material as well like i think dan brown is certainly from the school of tom clancy when it comes to melding fact with fiction <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
I will say that his books are an easy read, but that by no means makes them <laughs> any good whatsoever. Yeah. I remember I read Deception Point in a day, and I was angry after I finished it as well. <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's my experience you, you, with Dan you, Brown. You put it down and then threw it in the fire. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm glad I only wasted a day. Yeah. So anyway, moving back to <laughs> Willow. So yes, Ron Howard was brought on to direct the film. And then because we are dealing with a George Lucas story by credit, it was his original idea, but he didn't write the script. He actually brought in no. Bob Dolman to write the script. And they had worked together on a TV show pilot that went unproduced. And that was called Little Shots as well, which sounds like it could also be the working title of Willow. <laughs> and then we actually move over to the funding of Willow. And this is where things get, well, a little bit more complicated for Lucas and his crew. They actually had a hard time finding the funding for Willow because fantasy was seen as a dead genre at that time. Yeah. They did eventually manage to secure half of the funding from Alan Ladd Jr., who was working with... MGM at the time. He was the head of MGM, but they were having some financial difficulties at that time also, which meant that they could not provide the full $35 million budget that was required to make Willow. So Lucas then sold off the home video rights to the film to Columbia, and uh, they provided the remaining $15 million for the budget. I mean, actually coming back around to that, I actually think that probably Columbia made what we would regard as the sweetest deal on this film <laughs> yeah. in retrospect, because um, I know we all come back to this in more greater detail, but it was quite the hits on home video. Well, the copy I've got is a, uh, a 20th Century Fox distributed DVD. Oh, is it? It came out around the same time that the uh, episode one DVD came out, because obviously that famously came oh, out of quite a long time after the film. I remember episode one was only available on VHS for about two or three years and then they brought out the dvd because i don't know what the issue was there but it was a, a quite a gap and um the copy i have it's the pre-restoration one and it's uh, the thx mastered one it looks very similar to the star wars prequels and um mm -hmm. dvd special edition boxes in terms of its format and layout with the yeah. little golds like silver strips on the top and the bottom of the frame. It seems to me that there's been a selling of the rights, because, I, I mean, I agree with you as well. Like, the DVD I have as well is... Uh, I have the Blu-ray, in fact, sorry, is also 20th Century Fox. Yeah. So I feel like there's been a change there in terms of, like, there's been a selling of the rights in the years since. Yeah, I wonder whether you had enough money to buy it back again. Yeah, perhaps as well with the recent news of what they're going to be doing with Willow in terms of mm. Disney+. Plus, I feel like that's probably been something that Lucas has maybe tried to push in the past as well. I know that he has released further Willow adventures, but they're in book form and they're not yeah, specifically yeah. Willow orientated. And I just have another piece of information about the film as well, that it was filmed at Elstree. Canon Elstree. <laughs> <laughs> at the time. And exterior locations were in Wales and New Zealand. Mm. And the two merged together quite well in this film, I'd say, as well. Were they one of the first to use New Zealand in that way? With that fantasy framing. I'd have to look into it further, but it seems like that would have been the case. I can't think of a film previously that has utilised it in that way, but perhaps so. Mm. Yeah, so there's a little bit of context just to really set the scene for Willow. Do you have anything to add, Andy, at this point? Not really. There's not an awful lot on the actual making of the film in terms of the preamble. It yeah. seems like, apart from the struggle to get the money, because Lucas was handling it himself, it seemed to come together in the end quite smoothly. Jumping into the film now, my opinion of it, I do have something to say that maybe there has been some issues with the film in post, because I do feel like one of the major things 
negatives I would say about this film is it does feel like there's been big chunks cut out in mm. places, especially in regards to a couple of characters. And I found it very noticeable on this watch through. Just in general as well, talking about my opinion of Willow. I still quite enjoy it, but I brought up a question during the watching of the film that I think is probably damning for the film as well. And that is, in a post-Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings world, is there any need or reason for Willow to exist? I think that's very prescient for the TV series that is potentially going to be made because I'm really wondering what they're actually going to do. Yeah. Especially considering that a lot of the other people involved in the film are either dead, retired, or can no longer function to the level that is required of them. I'm pretty sure that with the exception of the character of Willow himself, they're going to have to start from scratch, I would say. Yes. And it will be a very different animal to what this film is because there's nothing to latch onto in terms of, oh, that's something that they can explore. Or, you know, this, I feel like it's very done and dusted. And because I feel like it is so derivative at times, and given the fact that Lord of the Rings is, still has such a huge presence yeah. in the collective consciousness of people that I don't know what they're going to do, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I do feel like they are given more of a clean slate, a blank canvas, to make something of Willow now. And perhaps the fact that they're unable to bring back a lot of the elements from the film into the TV series... Perhaps that may work in their favour in that they can really build it into something that is far more original. I do have a feeling that if they do explore Willow through a TV show, it will be more centred around... Oh, I forgot the name of the baby. To be honest, I can't remember many of the names in this film anyway. Exactly. So. I did write them down, but whoever the baby is, the princess, I think it will explore more who that character has grown up to be. And Willow's perhaps relationship with her over the years and yeah. how he comes to her aid in some way. But I hope that it is something more wholly original than what Willow is because you cannot escape just how derivative that film is. Yeah. And my four-year-old loved it and it gave me hits of nostalgia. But at every point I was very conscious of that. And more so when I was watching the film, I was like, oh, this is Hobbiton. Oh, these are the Hobbits. Oh, that's Galadriel. Oh, this yeah. is Aragorn. That's Rohan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. And it, it is essentially Lord of the Rings with Han Solo rather than Aragorn. Yeah, I would say my experience of the film was similar, but it was marked about half an hour in because I started watching it with Jess. And about half an hour in, it's around the time that we meet... Um, Mad Mardigan. Mad Mardigan. And she turned to me and said, is this supposed to be crap or are they being ironic? <laughs> and it completely changed my... Well, it didn't change my view. I was kind of thinking it myself, but then I started watching it in a much more critical light than I had done previously. Yeah. That was a question that was ringing in my head for the entire duration of the film. Yeah. Because I find it has a, a wildly inconsistent tone. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine they ever sat down and had a tone meeting because it's one of those films where I was like, when we were saying it last night, it's great if you catch it at a particular age and have no knowledge of any of the uh, things it's based on. 
yeah, it's it's I would say practically a requirement. Yeah, that you see it at a certain age, or you're just simply not going to get the most out of the film. I feel like it's one of those flash in the pan type of films where if you just catch it at the right time, it'll work mm. wonders for you. You'll have that special place for it. But then if you're outside of that window too bad, it's shit. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, there are elements that I like, but so much of it I don't think works or feels very half-baked or completely just carbon copy of something else. And yeah. sometimes unintentionally veering into self-parody in terms of some of its references. And also, like, it's kind of a weird precursor. Well, the other thing I found that, because I hadn't seen it in such a long time, I was looking at it with an eye on the future and one of the things I feel like tone-wise it may be the inspiration to is Pirates of the Caribbean because I feel like a lot of the stuff with Mad Mardigan it felt like in, you know, 15 years later those are the kind of scrapes that Jack Sparrow would be involved in. Yeah. It felt very similar, eerily similar at times and I was like, ooh, they've nicked quite a lot of this like in terms of the weird slapstick set pieces. Yeah, he is a very Sparrow-esque character and he's used in a similar way as Sparrow is used. Yeah. Which is a as a secondary character to the leads, really. Yeah. But yeah, I would say that he is a very a, very much a precursor to the likes of Jack Sparrow. Yeah. Yeah, so but I dunno. Um Yeah, I think I just felt very disengaged from the film because of its strange tone, weird pacing. Yeah. The fact that the editing robs quite a few of the characters of any depth or interest. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, the only sequence that really worked for me, and that was mainly from a feeling of nostalgia because I remembered it so much. That's the part of the film I remembered the most was the um, the Ebersisk monster. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Which I still think is very well done. It is very well done, but I have issues with how that creature comes to be. It's almost by accident. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I completely forgotten how it came to be, and it kind of confused me. And I actually genuinely thought that that sequence... I'm not sure whether it's because time moves much slower when you're a child. I thought that sequence was much longer than it was yeah. when I was a kid. And I thought it did more as a kid. A little reference as well in regards to the Ebersisks, that his name is actually a, a reference to both Eber and Siskel, the uh, yeah. very famous Hollywood critics. Although it's not as on the nose as another character. No. <laughs> yes. Because obviously the Ebersisk is only named after the fact. It's not named in the film. Yes. But uh, one character is named in the film. Yep. And that is uh, General Pauline Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love that if, if that was his first name. <laughs> That would have been the great. skull mask. It's like, I <laughs> yeah, am Pauline. Pauline. <laughs> Call me Pauline. Or Paul for short. Or Paula. <laughs> I read somewhere as well that Pauline Kale said it was a it was an honour to have a character named after her, an evil character named after her. I don't know if that meant that she gave it a good review or not, but mm. probably the closest it got. <laughs> no, yeah. I will say that one of the things that I personally think works in the film's favour. I mean, I agree with you on several fronts in regards to the tone and the editing. And one point that I do want to get into, as I've mentioned, is that the editing robs the characters of a lot of depth and agency. And also, I feel like there are a couple of set pieces that are entirely missing or character arcs that mm. just are half complete by the way that the time that the film ends. Yeah. I know there's at least one that's on the cutting room floor that I've seen. Okay. Which I don't know why it's a deleted scene. I don't have any knowledge about what's on the cutting room floor. Yeah. It's just this is just my intuition just watching the film. I feel like because that they've taken a couple of set pieces out of the film as well, yeah. makes it feel a lot slower than I remember it as a kid. Yeah. It, it did feel very rushed at times, but 
oddly boring in others. Yeah, I think that's the issue, is it wasn't as engaging as I remembered it to be. Like, I think it slows down to a crawl the moment they find, I forgot the name of the witch, but they found the, the witch at the lake who the, they've meant to go to. Yeah. All of the names are a, are a mess to me, by the way. I've, I've tried my best to write them down. And I know there's a sequence there that's on the cutting room floor, which involves the fish boy. Okay, so, yeah, so you've just mentioned something there was fish boy. Yeah. I would like to know more. I'm yeah. going to subscribe to your newsletter. <laughs> Don't tell. So, well, I can't remember the bloody name, but I'm going to just call her Patricia Highsmith as an animal because that's all I remember <laughs> her. Because that actress is forever cemented in my mind as the old woman from Fish Call Wonder with the dogs. And in fact, that was the same year. So it was quite a good year for her, 1988. But yeah, she's uh, on this little island as a possum. But there's a deleted scene because obviously it gets to the... Um, the middle of the lake without incident in the final cut of the film but there is a an extended sequence where a boy is in the lake and he warns him not to go into the lake and you see him turn into this horrible fish monster creature and attack willow in his boat but the effect i think they they shot it for about seven days or something it was quite a long sequence and warwick davis is in the boat getting soaked for seven whole days and they cut the whole sequence out but the effect of the fish monster if you've seen the rushes and the deleted scene it looks shit okay it looks terrible quite rightly they cut it out but they didn't replace it with anything so there's a lack of peril in that sequence of the film that's it there's no peril i don't understand why that character is stranded on that island if there's no real peril to really prevent anybody from going to her yeah or her finding a way off that island even as a possum the inclusion of a, some sort of lake monster yeah. would certainly explain that whole side of things as well. Yeah, and it's a shame that they didn't find another way to execute it or at least be a bit creative with the editing because the actual uh, the sequence of him transforming into this fish is quite horrifying as well. So, yeah, it's a shame. I mean, there's yeah, there's a few little bits and bobs like that. I mean, one of the other deleted scenes that I know of is involving Saoirse, yeah. which I feel is quite important and creates a little bit of a plot hole at the end of the film. I've been dancing around that character throughout the entire intro, but I will say that she is the character that I feel like at a certain point in the film, after the, I would say, the set piece in which Mad Martigan professes his love to her, mm. she becomes a non-entity in the film yep. and she's only really utilised to make googly eyes at Val Kilmer. Yeah. And I was noticed that she was curiously silent and only had perhaps two or three lines from that point all the way to the end of the film. And that's a good chunk of the yeah. film. That's at least half an hour of the film where she doesn't do or say anything. Yeah. And I actually wrote in my notes that surely this is when that character should be at her most interesting because one, she is the daughter of the lead villain and two, she is now a traitor in the lead villain's eyes because she has moved to the other side. She has uh, hmm. joined the good guys. And that means, really, for me, her character should be at her most interesting there as well. And they should have at least played on the, the feeling that she's being pulled from one side to the other a lot more than they did. Yeah, you'd get the feeling that the, the filmmakers feel like as soon as she switches to the good side, that's her arc done. Yes, exactly, yeah. They don't know what to do with her after that. But yeah, that brings me to the other deleted scene that I know about is in the... Um, I'm going to say Minas Tirith, but it's not. It's Tirith Lean, but it may as well be. Because <laughs> I was like, to Tirith, uh, to, to Tirith uh, Lean. <laughs> Tirith Minith. So there's a brief shot of you can see people encased in those kind of crystalline stone things and they, they do nothing with it because it's all on the cutting room floor. What the fuck happened there? There's one line. So 
the idea is that her father is encased in one of these crystalline structures and talks to her. And it's that that actually gives her the change of heart to actually side with, with Willow and Mad Margan. And it's gone. And I don't know why it's gone, because it doesn't look dodgy. But essentially, that would give her more agency and more yeah. drive to confront her mother about what she's done to her father as well. What the hell? Yeah, and it's all the more problematic as well, because the end of the film, the throne room Star Wars <laughs> analogue sequence at the end, actually features the same actor playing her father, who's obviously out of his crystalline casing and it's gone back to normal but is that the gentleman with the very long gray beard that stood next to yeah him? but they make no mention of it that's actually her father but obviously because they cut the scene out they've just sort of gone yeah it's a, some old guy in the background <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i'm not quite sure what's happened here with that i'm not sure there's some pressure to keep it two hours or something like that i really don't know yeah but if they were doing that i would have cut out some other bits and bobs rather than take that out certainly uh, yeah I, I would say in fact there's probably a little bit too much uh scenes of people walking exactly and i say that as somebody that loved the lord of the rings films yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at least they feel like they're walking towards something yeah. in those films a lot of times i just because i also have no idea of the geography of this world in that we're in and so the scenes of people walking are aimless to me i do not know where they are going i do not know where this place is in relation to where they are now and i have no idea of this land that they're in the scenes of walking are just walking i had no idea to the context half the time because um when thingy's in the cage and then the, you see that other army i thought oh is that the is that the bad army same here and i didn't realize that it was this background sort of conflict yeah I was just lost for the, most of the running time in terms of the bigger picture. I knew what they had to do, yeah. but in terms of the stakes, in terms of what this baby meant to the villain, I have no fucking idea. I don't know what her plan was other than killing the baby. I, I don't get it. Yeah, the film begins with a preamble about a prophecy about a baby being born that will overcome this evil queen. Yeah. But... We don't really get any idea, as you mentioned, one, who this baby is and how they're going to overcome this evil queen. Are they magical? Is it something along those lines? Yeah. Are they powerful in some way? Are they going to grow up to be a great warrior? Um, I would say even in regards to the evil queen, we don't really get to know who she is and why she is the way that she is. They just utilize the iconography that goes with Disney Snow White, really, to establish that this queen is evil because they just simply modeled her look from the evil queen from that film. Yeah, I actually wrote in my notes that Jean Marsh was reprising her role as Mombi. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, obviously, Return to Oz was directed by George's friend, yeah. Walter Murch. And I imagine that's why Gene Marsh is in this film playing a similar role. And I do like Gene Marsh. Yeah. I will say that I like a lot of the actors in this film as well. But I would say that, like, say some characters, they're just paper thin. Oh, yeah. She's in the film far less than I remembered. I bet you she's got like five to ten minutes of screen time the whole film. Yeah. And I will say that I think it's another one of those things where she made an impression on me when I was younger. Yeah. I actually remember finding her more towards the end of the film quite scary mm. especially in the scene in which she turns everyone into pigs that one really did make an impression on me and she starts turning into the emperor <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> no 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 <laughs> uh yeah I, I didn't even make that connection but yeah. she really does and i will say that 
the last fight between the uh, the sorcerers, I actually wrote my note. Surely Peter Jackson saw this. Oh, totally. I, I wrote Gandalf versus Saruman. Same here. <laughs> the witch battle at the end has Jackson seen this. It's Gandalf versus Saruman. Yeah, it's a mixture of Vader versus Obi-Wan with Gandalf versus Saruman. Yeah. I put in my notes, why is Gene Marsh getting old? Because <laughs> I've no idea why. I generally put that the climax is very confusing and I have absolutely no idea what is going on throughout any of that. No, I mean, like you say, they're going to kill this baby with a ritual. We don't know what this ritual is or why it is important, why there even needs to be a ritual to kill the baby. I mean, this is not a phrase that I really want to be found uttering that often, but if you're Gene Marsh, why not just kill the baby? Why is there a ritual? It's like, it feels like there's a lot of things in place in this film just simply because oh, well, that's what happens in fantasy films. Yeah. It's not really an understanding of how to implement these ideas. It's just a retelling of these ideas. It's just a run-through of the genre cliches and tropes. And in many ways, I think, to be honest, that's why I do find that Willow is probably a fine introduction to the genre. And because it's simple enough and all surface level that if you are of a kid of a certain age you're not looking for depth you're not looking for mythology so to speak you're looking for easily digestible ideas and images Mm. and in that way i do feel like willow is it's essentially a trailer for a genre yeah yeah for me that's how it worked on me and for my four-year-old i can see how that's how it worked on her as well Mm. but yeah the ends fight especially when uh, gene marsh was thrown against the ceiling oh and threw around like a ragdoll. <laughs> I laughed, but I wrote, yeah, this is very Gandalf and Saruman. Well, it was making me laugh how once she'd been transformed into a human, Patricia Highsmith was playing Gandalf the White. Yep. I was watching Oliver Harper's review of this earlier just to get another perspective on it. He was basically saying how it follows the same mythical rules as Star Wars, but does it far less subtly. Yeah. Um, you can see all the joins where all the references come from, whereas Star Wars was very clever at covering up those roots. Yeah. So much so as to uh, genuinely convince a lot of people into thinking that, I mean, I love Star Wars, but I think some people maybe slightly overpraise it and think it's the most original thing ever. But in fact, when you dig deep, it's a grab bag of lots of different things. Whereas this is the same, but it's not had the same level of care put to it to try and make it feel more original than it actually is. I don't like to use the term overrated. That's not something that I, I really buy no, into. It's, it's, that's a bit too strong a word anyway, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. But I do feel like with Star Wars, I love Star Wars. I grew up with Star Wars. But one thing that I've grown to know about Star Wars is that it's not chock full of original ideas. The way that it brings all of these ideas together is original and how this world is realized how this galaxy far far away is realized is original and it took a lot of talent from a lot of different people in order to realize that vision and build this world and implement those ideas to make them original as a whole but the pieces when you actually take the film apart on a story level on a narrative level the film is very stock it is very much of its sources, really, of its inspirations yeah. from the likes of Flash Gordon, from the likes of the Akira Kurosawa films that George Lucas was watching. One of them is The Seven Samurai, mm. and then there's another one, The Hidden Fortress. Hidden Fortress, there that's we go. it, yeah. Um, once you really start to see his inspirations, you realise that I don't think that George Lucas himself is 
a creative on that level. And I don't think he has that many original ideas. I think like you were saying before, in terms of lots of people contributed to the success of Star Wars, and I would wholeheartedly agree with that. And and going down to what people are actually directly involved in the production of the original film, yeah, that definitely seems to be the case. I, I would say if George had had more control over that film, it wouldn't be half as good as it is. Yeah, It was mainly down to people saying, no, how about doing it like this? that actually turned it around and prevented it from being a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I kind of feel like with Willow, the seeds for destruction are starting to appear yeah. in his uh, own legacy because I notice little twitches of things that feel very prequely, even down to some of the lines, like just the stock lines that he uses. Like there's one that Billy Barty says towards the beginning and I was just like, I couldn't believe it was in the film because it's... Uh, he just goes, you have much to yearn, lung of good. And I was like, Padawan. <laughs> yeah, that is uh, something he leans into a lot. <laughs> yeah, I feel like more of his odd, offbeat sense of humour is more prominent here. I mean, it was definitely prominent in um, in How the Duck, but no one saw that. So I feel like, I mean, How the Duck's weirder than this film, but it still feels like it's, it's starting to become very well established within Lucasfilm. It was the cats of its day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know I opened my spiel with the knights who say knee, but I feel like when he was writing the story or something or, or whoever was involved in the dialogue was maybe watching Monty Python and the Holy Grail because there's so much in this that feels like that film. Python-esque. The biggest proponent of that is the brownies. Yeah. I put one. The two brownies are Merry and Pippin. Yeah. As voiced by French John Cleese out of the Holy Grail. <laughs> There's even a line where they say, your mother was a lizard. And I put, and your father smelled of elderberries. <laughs> yeah, it just it's just some weird contextual stuff that is just all over the place. What did you think of the brownies as characters as well? Uh, annoying as fuck. Oh god, I wasn't the only one. I um, I would say as a kid, I, I remember thinking of them quite fondly. Yeah, <laughs> I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but weirdly, when I was younger, I used to get like attached to character actors that I wanted to see more in things. And Kevin Pollock, weirdly, was one of those. I was like, <laughs> I, I like Kevin Pollock, and I think Willow is the reason for that. Yeah, I loved the Brownies when I was a kid, and now I've grown up. They are very much the Jar Jar Binks of this film. Yeah. Again, this is another one of those things. I don't know what their relationship is with this world. I like what they represent in a way, in that I like that this world, there's, there's something going on on smaller levels, even so, because it already frames Willow as a little person in a much larger world and a, a world of much larger people. But it also says that, actually, he is not the smallest. There's a scale, and it's like there's much smaller worlds below this one. Yeah. And I like what that says, but why did they have to be so fucking annoying? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I actually liked. One of the only things I genuinely liked was the bit where Willow and his Samwise Gamgee analogue were being tied down by the brownies. And I was like, oh, this is like an ironic version of Gulliver's Travels. Gulliver's Travels, yeah. But it was spoilt by fake Galadriel. Yeah. Which was done very cheesily. I hadn't forgotten how cheesy that section was. That's very... Um, oh, that's it. When the, In the Dungeons & Dragons episode, we were talking about how Dungeons & Dragons was, because it was released before Lord of the Rings, it was more of a piece with the 80s fantasy films, because we didn't get many fantasy films in the 90s, because after no. Willow, there was pretty much nothing. It's kind of the end of the era. But everything's, yeah, lacks depth, is superficial and kind of cheesy. And I felt like yeah. that 
Galadriel sequence, because again, I can't remember the fucking name of that character. No. Was very cheesy and just exposition central. And uh, also, strangely, um, created a, a logistical problem as well, because later on, when they, during the end battle, uh, Jess was going, why does that other sorceress not come and help out? Yeah, uh, not like fairy queen or something. I, why does she not help out? I don't get why she cares no. <laughs> as well. Like, I don't understand. I guess this is, again, it's just that playing into that idea that it's more so just these images and tropes being used because they're used elsewhere. It's like, oh, because this is what fantasy does, but with no idea of how to properly implement them or integrate them into the world. Yeah. It's just, Willow feels like a film of happenings, but because it's playing to a structure that, we're familiar with you can kind of piece them together to a narrative but again yeah that's why it works for kids but now it's just not fulfilling and as i mentioned in the post lord of the rings world where you've already got the set in stone perfect vision for how to make these type of films willow becomes redundant in many ways this is essentially the way that i've used willow is really to whet my child's appetite for lord of the rings which Mm -hmm. they've already seen bits and bobs of anyway it's that acclimatization film. Yeah. If you get this, then you're going to love that. But yeah, she feels as well as perhaps the most rippy off element of the film as well in many ways because it kind of comes out of nowhere completely. She knows everything about the world and the people in it and everything like that. And then she disappears utterly from the film and that's that's it, done. Yeah, and yet the brownies don't when they probably should. Yeah, yes, exactly. Like, exactly. Once that bit's over with, and I kind of like the idea of that, it does nothing with them. And they're more of a hindrance than a help. Yeah. Uh, and they sort of appear sporadically throughout the movie. Like there's parts where I feel like they should be there that they've just disappeared and yeah. their appearances are very inconsistent. And what happened to the Samwise Gamgee character? I feel like I blinked and they disappeared. Did they simply go back home? Yeah. That feels very like anticlimactic for, for that character as well. After yeah. sticking by Willow. I can imagine that's George Lucas thinking he's being really clever and subversive by going, oh, I'm doing the uh, the Lord of the Rings Hobbit party, but no, I'm dispensing with them all because, <laughs> you know, I'm being clever. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of strange because they spend an awful long time setting up those characters and then just get rid of them. As you mentioned, there's probably the feeling that, oh yeah, we're being subversive by doing this. But in a lot of ways, then it feels like a lot of wasted time setting up those characters yeah. if they're not going to be important to the remainder of the film. I generally feel that with any of the dwarf sequences because it spends so much time with them and then all of a sudden they've just disappeared apart from Willow. Yeah. When you return to them at the end, it's it doesn't feel as end because no. you know, you have that bit at the at the end where he's like going, Kaya, Kaya and I was like, Cool. You know. <laughs> That was a great Warwick Davis impression, by the way. Kaya, Kaya! <laughs> Actually, I'm just going to say, like, what's going on with the accents in this film in general? Because I've no idea what anyone's supposed to be sounding like, because it's kind of, no. it veers wildly between something vaguely Irish and just full and American, and then not. Val Kilmer, when he's inside his little cage, I feel like he has a completely different accent and character than he does even just a couple of scenes later. He has completely different teeth a couple of scenes later as well. He does, yeah, he's got all the grotty bottom teeth as well that you get to a glimpse of. Yeah, and then the next bit, actually, even when he's still in the cage, he's already cleaned up. Yeah. It's bizarre. I feel like somebody saw the rushes and bolts at the idea of making Val Kilmer ugly when he's supposed to be the, the bit of eye candy for the film. Yeah, and even at this stage in his career, Val Kilmer sounds dubbed throughout the entire film yeah he does and i don't know why that is who knows yeah i couldn't get around warwick davis's accent because i know he had to change it but it doesn't feel on point 
quite a lot of the time. No. I mean, he probably is down to his inexperience, but they piled on a lot for him for his first role. He essentially is the person that's carrying the film on his shoulders. Yeah. And for that, I actually think he does really quite well. Mm -hmm. I do think there's issues with the accent, but I actually think he is a quite endearing character for the most part. Yeah. I will say that this is nothing to do with Warwick Davis, but Willow is a bit too whiny as a character as well. He whinges a lot. And that starts to grate as the film goes on. Yeah. But I still find Willow in general as a quite endearing character. I think a lot of that is just down to Warwick Davis. He does have a lot of screen presence, even at this very early stage in his career. Mm. I kind of wish it would have gone on and led on to more for him. I mean, in many ways, it's not like his career is lacked, but he's never been the front and centre main character, much as Willow places him as no, ever no. since, really. No. I mean, remembering as well that he's 18 years old when this film is made. <laughs> and I remember being a kid and I completely bought into the idea that this 18-year-old had a wife and two kids. <laughs> I think he was actually 17 when they did this. Really? I know that his kids are only like nine years younger than him. Although his wife looks about 15 years older than him, but... Um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what is that? <laughs> Yeah, she kind of looked more like his mum. It's just one of those weird Lucas things, like he wants us to make Indiana Jones a pedophile. Probably, probably. He probably thought it was funny. Oh yeah, of course. Well, the other thing that actually made me sigh as soon as I saw it, and it's right at the start of the film, during the credits, it came up to director of photography, Adrian Biddle, and I sighed because I fucking hate Adrian Biddle. I think he's one of the worst cinematographers. Yeah? He's so... He's not bad. He's just... Whenever I see a film that he's been involved with, it never pops. It's dull and flat yeah and this is another one of those films that just falls into that category i mean that's another reason why i'm sorry aliens fans it's the worst looking aliens film mm. and everything just seems often underwhelming yeah and, and yeah the colors in this are very muddy and brown they are and there's not enough change to them in order to provide that sense of journey as well you want to see the world change around them and the colors change with them but instead it stays very muddy and brown and not very interesting looking I, and i will say that there are sh does that remind us of another ron howard film which one would i go for no what, han solo oh, i forgot that's it that is a ron howard film i yeah. keep forgetting as well muddy and brown and dark yeah mm. that's han solo in a, in a nutshell because even from what i've seen that seems to be the case with the the da vinci code as well it is very brown it's maybe it's a ron howard aesthetic as well it's his favorite color <laughs> <laughs> And I do think that some of the film looks okay. There are images that are quite striking. I like some of the scenes of the initial, I, I nearly called, refer to them as the Fellowship, but the initial uh, journeying of the Fellowship out of Hobbiton, I'm going to say, whatever yeah. relationship of that is to Willow. There's a couple of matte paintings in that. I like. Yeah, I think that's more down to the matte paintings, than which probably would have been photographed by somebody else. Yeah, fair enough. And also, like, landscape shots, because obviously landscapes yeah. are going to look nice anyway, you know. Well, exactly. There's a lot of landscape stuff that I quite like, but whenever it gets in tight, especially towards the end of the film, I think that the last third of the film as well is really dull looking, especially the final fight at the castle. Both of those castle fights just feel lacking in terms of any energy or fire or passion. Like even the set dressing for one of the castles is just black with straw. I don't know what that look is, but it's like black with straw pushed in between the bricks. Mm. And it, that just makes for a very dull looking climax. And everybody's wearing very dull colours as well. And the camera's not doing anything that's interesting enough to really engage me in this world. No. Did Adrian Biddle also be the director of photographer for The Princess Bride as well? Yeah, just like, look that up. Quick look of that now. Well, I would say Adrian Biddle is the very similar to Ron Howard, where he's very yeah. professional, gets the job done, but with no particular flair or personality. 
Oh, we did Rain of Fire, which was a film that I watched the other day. That has a dull, muddy-looking palette as well. <laughs> yeah, he did The Princess Bride. It's weird. The same year he did The Princess Bride. The, the same year that he, he did Willow. Maybe that's down to Rob Reiner, though. I wrote in here that the, to say that The Princess Bride came out, I think, the same year. Or was it or just before? I think, yeah, the year before, I think. 87, The I year think. before. Yeah. So The Princess Bride came out just before Willow. And I will say that Willow looks far more polished and mm. technically better in terms of the way that the special effects are utilised in that type of way. But it's lacking every ounce of creativity and sharp-wittedness. Like, the characters pale in comparison. And I yeah. think that goes to show just how... I mean, The Princess Bride is now regarded as one of the great 80s fantasy films. And Willow, not so much. Yeah. And I think that goes to show that, you know what, you can have the more accomplished special effects and that type of thing. But it's no substitute for just simply good writing and creative directing as well. Yeah, and it's funny when we we got to the, the morphing sequence, which is very famous and obviously was used subsequently in a lot of other films. When we got to that, Jess was like, oh, is George just showing off now? Yeah. Because we always have to go back to that quote by George, basically saying a special effect without a story isn't very special. Mm-hmm. I feel that towards the end of the 80s, that starts to ring quite true yeah. for a lot of the things that he's involved in and obviously gets worse as time goes on. But yeah, I was just thinking, going back to Adrian Biddle just briefly, I, I was thinking that you're feeling that the action sequences didn't pop. That may also be down to Adrian Biddle because we discussed long before. I mean, this may be for another episode anyway, but when we're talking about another Adrian Biddle film that he kind of spoilt with his cinematography was uh, World Is Not Enough. Oh, of course. And how where the camera's placed and the choices that he made on that film are very detrimental to it being an action movie. Yeah. Yeah, I just feel like they should have got someone a bit more pizzazz to do Willow. Uh, you need someone, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd say either Alex Thompson or Jordan Cronenworth or someone like that because I feel like, one, with both those guys, there's a real nice contrast of colours yeah. and you get that with The Legend, which has a very storybooky, very colourful palette. But then also you get that with, say, something like Blade Runner, which has a similar yes, kind definitely. of almost like fantasy dreamlike vibe to it and you need that kind of dreamlike thing going on with, with a fantasy film. Yeah. And I feel like this is almost like too grounded and down to earth where it doesn't so quite like say so i don't think it quite matches like the matte paintings and stuff it feels like no. it needs a bit more style to it it does I, and in many ways i feel like i know that this is a film that ron howard is still very much proud of the film that he made but it still does feel like it's a director that's a little bit unsure of himself in this world i know that he wants to make a fancy movie but it feels just a bit lacking of personality in that way and a lot more I, I think you've mentioned a nutshell when describing Ron Howard a bit more workmanlike, a bit more professional. Let's just get this done rather than a passion project. Yeah. Speaking about Adrian Biddle, I will say that two films that I think actually suit his cinematography. I, I don't mind the way the aliens looks, I think it's well accomplished, but I do agree with you that of the I will say at least the first three and probably even Alien Resurrection when we actually get to the cinematography. It is probably the worst in terms of cinematography, but it's still one of his better films. Yeah, easily. And two more that I would say that still fit with his style of cinematography, which is, as we mentioned, it's always kind of a bit murky, a bit brown. Mm. But worlds that suit that. Watching Rain of Fire again, it does look good. Mm. And watching V for Vendetta as well, that's another film that suits his cinematography because it's kind of the murkiness of it. Yeah. But I think he needs a real visionary 
I, I mean, I know that to say that type of term visionary has become a bit of a cliche, but he needs more of a visionary director behind him, really, to push those ideas and those images to the forefront and get that energy out of his cinematography. Yeah. Because even with uh, Viva Vendetta and Aliens, you've got James Cameron with Aliens and Viva Vendetta. I know that it's by, um, I forgot the name of the director now, Mick Teague or something like that. It's, it's the guy that did the stunt work or second unit direction on the Matrix films, but it's mostly overseen by the Wachowskis. Oh, yeah, yeah. They are, if anything, like, they are absolutely visual creatives. So I think he needs that behind him, really, to light a fire, because if you look through his filmography as well, there's not many great-looking films there. He's very much like Ron Howard, just a very safe pair of hands, but with no... Yeah. No flat. And and I think, again, I feel like maybe Ron Howard was miscast for this film as well. I feel like for a fantasy film, you need someone with a almost with like eccentricities in the way that they make films. Yeah. And yeah, I just feel like he's too workmanlike to put his own stamp on something, which I feel is another reason why it feels so derivative is that he's just used all these stock elements and everything looks very stock fantasy for a large part of it. Yeah. There's not enough that's unique about it. I think that's where Star Wars does cover its tracks a lot because the actual visual look of the film and the design of the film is a lot more unique and i think that's what a lot of people picked up on at the time when the original star wars came out Mm -hmm. that it really covers up those familiar narrative elements because you're you're so in awe of the the unique visuals and the way the spaceships look and darth vader and everything like that so with this film because everything is so stock it just emphasizes those derivative elements even more so yeah and bar a couple of things like, you know, like the Little People Village and stuff like that, there's not enough to um, make it stand out. Yeah, for me as well, uh, one of the things that I do think sums up this film in a nutshell is the music by James Horner. Mm-hmm. I have a love-hate relationship with James Horner, as I've mentioned previously. I do find that he does repeat himself a lot, and a lot more than composers normally do as well. There's certain motifs that are just heard throughout his entire works. <laughs> that one's used a lot and and then you get his danger motif that's used throughout his entire filmography but every now and again the stars will align and he will just knock it out of the park but otherwise he does feel a little bit more workmanlike and willow i will say has both the best and worst elements of james horner combined and that sums up the film for me is that like there are two i would say two very strong themes for willow that really work to sell this fantasy world that i really like there's the main willow theme and there's another theme later on i can i can i can hear them in my mind in, in fact i will lay them over what we're talking about now I'll lay down one of the themes <laughs> as we are speaking now and i will say that this theme works really well throughout the entire film but that's the only time that i think that the score really ever shines in this world most of the other time it's, it's just doing its job Whereas at times I feel like it it comes together and does something special and then completely reverts back to just normal James Horner repeating himself. Because even there's a moment in the film that repeats one of his themes from Aliens, which in itself was a repetition of a ballet, a Russian ballet. And it's like something he didn't even write that he's now (laughs) repeating that he did in a previous film. He's notorious for recycling cues and even recycling cues based on other people's works. Yeah. And a lot of plagiarism. I have heard through people that are in the know in the uh, soundtrack community that he and, and again, this is just alleged anecdotal, but I have read that he and Jerry Goldsmith had a very turbulent relationship 
because of that as well yeah. with their work on the Star Trek films. I know that Jerry Goldsmith really did not like James Horner from what I've been told because of his style of music and, and his blatant repetition and plagiarism. Yeah, I can really understand that because... God, they're like, if there's ever two composers who were like chalk and cheese, yeah. they would be that, wouldn't they? It's like, yeah. Because, you know, Jerry Goldsmith was such a huge innovator yeah. and tried to do something different with every score. I mean, yeah, you just compare the likes of The Omen to Planet of the Apes to really. Yeah. I mean, I know they're completely different films, but with James Horn of soundtracks, even if they're completely different films, even if it's comparing Willow to. I don't know, like Patriot games, you're still going to hear some of the same stuff. But if you compare like the likes with Jerry Goldsmith, The Omen to Planet of the Apes. And then Star Trek the Motion Picture. Uh, yeah, and start it's completely different. And then Total Recall. Ex- exactly, yeah. I would say he was one of the best in an underappreciated Easily. way as well. Easily. I know that he is a well regarded composer, but I don't think he gets the recognition as being one of the best, if not the best composer i think he was very uncompromising as well which i think explains why quite a lot of his scores were rejected yeah if you look into his filmography like (laughs) almost like every four films it's like rejection rejected score yeah because he's so like either one innovative and bloody minded and yeah yeah, and then you get like james horner who is talented but he's a bit like the mcdonald's of film composing you kind of know what you're gonna get it'll generally be very similar sounding bar a couple of exceptions here and there when he actually tries. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest example of that is if you ever listen to the score of Battle Beyond the Stars and then listen to the oh. <laughs> Wrath of Khan score, and they're exactly yeah. the same. It's like he just wholesale ripped off his own score for Wrath of Khan. And, yeah. and obviously that score is quite well regarded, but I think mainly by people who haven't listened to Battle Beyond the Stars. And then every now and again he'll come along and do something like Glory. That just yeah. blows your socks off. That's the issue with James Bond. That's the issue with this film as well. Is I, I feel like when it works, it works really well. But most of the time, it's just ripping off other sources. I think that's another source of annoyance as well. Because I did see something else earlier today about Willow being a um, a feminist piece. And actually thinking about it, I was like, mm, yeah, maybe it kind of is. Yeah, I think it was quite refreshing to see a lot of the um, featured characters who would normally be played by men to be played by women. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest frustrations that we were talking about Saoirse before because I felt like there was something interesting there that they did yeah. nothing with. And again, I was, I'm was i going into the um, George Lucas's weird sense of humour with like all the unnecessary gags, like with the love potion and stuff like that. In, in many why. ways, to be honest, I think that's when it becomes its weakest was the moment that they relegated Saoirse, uh, Joanna Whaley's character, after the love potion, or actually during the love potion sequence. As you mentioned, they have these female characters and roles that are normally reserved for masculine characters, which is great. That is definitely what you would call a progressive step. And never any point in the film do you really question their place in the world or as these characters. And then at that point in the film, when Val Kilmer's Mad Martigan is hit by this love potion and he falls in love with her instantly, it relegates her to just a love interest character who, from that point really, has fallen madly in love with him. Mm. Because all they really use her for from that point onwards, I mean, bar the escape, when she escapes from Mad Martigan as they move into the castle, the most that she's given is these goo-goo-eye kind of like stares at Mad Martigan as he's fighting. That's really all she has for the remainder mm. of the film. Although they could be real, considering what happened. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Well, they got married, didn't they? 
I didn't know. Yeah, no, that, yeah. They, I, I um, didn't know that they actually got married following this film. Yeah, they divorced in '95, but they were together for quite Ooh. a period after that. But yeah, that's they, and they met on this film. So, yeah, imagine some of those googly eyes are genuine googly eyes. Ah, so there we go. So it's life imitating art. Yeah, I yeah. will say that I too fell in love with Joanna Whaley in this film. She is <laughs> a lovely looking woman. Yeah, as I mean you that's say. the thing. She actually did have some screen presence, and they just waste it. Yeah, I put in my notes under this thing as well, like when they get. Go to uh, Tiris Lean, and they go Tiris Lean, and I just want it. I wanted it to cut to uh, Patsy from the Holy Grail, and going, "It's only a model." <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I needed more musical numbers. As oh, well. totally. Yeah, <laughs> um, I imagine George pushed for those as well. Like he wanted to make it a musical. And another thing that I actually wrote as well is, I miss Val Kilmer. I really do. Yeah, he has so much screen presence and charisma, and he's just affable i know that he was famously really hard to get on with as well on set yeah. for most of the films that he was in that always prevented him from becoming the big star i remember his, his big vehicle the saint was a something of a failure so he never really got the uh the franchise he was always seeking yeah it's trouble is he earned that reputation from such an early time i mean right from sort of top gun onwards yeah he had that reputation for being very uncompromising and not getting on with other cast members and which is all the more surprising that he ended up getting on with uh, Joanne Whaley. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. Well, it seems that he never gets on with other men. Oh, it could, yeah, it could be the challenge. Maybe. I wonder if he was very hard to Warwick Davis during this film. The competition. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, it's strange that that character does actually get quite forgotten towards the end of the film. Yeah. There's no proper end to that character. No, I actually think that the film, the fact that it's derivative, it is absolutely derivative, and the brownies get on my nerves... But I actually think it works fine as as mentioned as like a trailer for the fantasy genre in general, right up until the last act in which it all falls apart for me. Mm. That's when nothing comes together in a satisfying way, with probably the exception of I mean, Willow returning home maybe, but I would say that nothing really comes together in a satisfying way on a character level for any of the side characters that have been brought along on this quest. It just feels like it runs out of steam and ends with that final ritual because you don't, as mentioned, because you don't know anything about the ritual, because you don't know anything about this character, those flaws shine through then and that really shines a light on the rest of the film. And by the time it's finished, you're already going, well, who was that? Where did they come from? What did they mean to this world? What's going on in this world? Where is everything in relation to everything else? And it's at that point you realise that it doesn't hang together. And I think that yeah. that last act is the reason why the film falls apart. Yeah, like I've no idea what the stakes for her character are if she doesn't kill that child. And I don't know what happens the other way around either. And, and this conflict with the other kingdom as well, I don't know what the hell's going on with that. Yeah, and why there is even a conflict in general. Yeah. The last thing I wrote down was half-baked because I don't know what was going on. Yeah. Bar what was going on with those central characters, but the world building was pretty terrible, to be honest. Yeah, that's it. I feel like it flirts with the idea of having a world, but then just does nothing with it, really. Mm. doesn't explore it with in any meaningful way. Anyway, I think we've discussed Willow now yeah. <laughs> as much as we possibly can. Yeah. I feel really bad because I imagine some people have been waiting for this episode and we've we've been pretty negative on it. <laughs> I still want to stress as well that my reaction to the film was more positive than yours watching mm. it this time around, but I was watching it with my four-year-old. Yeah. And when it finished, it, like you say, it was a film that didn't sit with me too well. But the act of watching it with my daughter, she really enjoyed it. 
in a way that I think children of her age and older, probably up until about 10 years old, will really enjoy yeah. it or make them want to know more about the fantasy genre. Yeah. And it worked on me in that way when I was that age. Mm, same. But for me now, in a world in which Lord of the Rings exists, I have no reason to watch Willow again. And I feel like this is probably going to be the last time that I actively watch it. I'm not going to yeah. be the one that asks, oh, I'm going to watch Willow. Maybe my four-year-old will watch it five times a day from now, but <laughs> yeah. it's going to be the last time really that I say, oh yeah, let's watch Willow, because I don't have any reason to do so anymore. No. And so moving on to what I would call the stats and facts of the episode is where we start to discuss the critical reaction and the box office for Willow. I was actually quite surprised by the audience score in relation to the critical score for the film because I, I do remember that it was a film that received a mixed reception. I, I even recognised that when I was younger in the 90s that it wasn't exactly held as being this great fantasy film but it was mm. one I enjoyed back then. And it has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 50% with a 5.8 out of 10 really as being its average score from the critics. For me now, I would say that 50% is probably a fair score for what I would say that that hits the mark well. And it says that the consensus, the critical consensus is state-of-the-art visual effects and an appealing performance from Warwick Davis can't quite save Willow from its slow pace and generic story. That hits the nail on the head, yeah. Moving on to the audience score, the audience score is 79%, which is firmly fresh. If it was a critic score, you would say it was a certified fresh score. And the IMDb score for the film is 7.3 out of 10. I've got here as well an Empire review for the film by Ian Nathan, who has actually gone on to write a lot of the articles for Empire about the legacy of The Lord of the Rings. And he just released an amazing book that I have read cover to cover now, Peter Jackson and the Making of Middle Earth. And it's just pretty much about the making of The Lord of the Rings films from start to finish. And that is a fantastic book with lots of new information that isn't covered in the documentaries for The Lord of the Rings. So he is very much an expert on things fantasy in the film world. And he says, Willow is not without its charm. And he goes on to praise the visual effects in his re review. But he recognises that it's dwarfed by the likes of Lord of the Rings. Can you hear my daughter doing yeah. Frozen in the background? <laughs> that's, that's the house I live in. Oh. This is it. I can I can hear it throughout all of our previous episodes when I'm editing as well. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm keeping it in. It can be a cameo by, by my daughter. <laughs> Moving on to the box office. The budget for the film was $35 million, as we did say. Uh, the American gross for the film was $57 million. And a worldwide gross for the film was $137.6 million. So it did very good business, but not as well as expected. Uh, because at the time of release, they were really expecting it to be a new Star Wars, considering the amount of publicity and marketing mm. the film had received as well. But it did quite well. It was not a loss. And I had always assumed that this film made a loss, actually, to be honest. I was surprised to find out that it was actually made a tidy profit during its cinematic release. It evokes memories of Dick Tracy two years later. <laughs> Yeah. where a film was incredibly publicised and just did okay. Yeah. I think Dick Tracy did slightly less money than Willow, but it kind of just broke even. Yeah, But yeah, it, it didn't lose a ton of money, but it didn't make a load of money either. I'm pretty sure this was supposed to be a franchise and it didn't end up being one. You do get a feeling of that as well, because I know that George Lucas went on to, along with another writer, write three books I mean, I'm pretty sure the other writer, whoever wrote those books, wrote the books. Yeah. Well, it, um, but George Lucas's name is all over the front. On the cover, it just says, from a story by George Lucas, but it's actually by the other person. 
it's a bit like Garth Marenghi, where it should say on the front, based on a napkin written by George Lucas. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it seems that way with some of the Indiana Jones. Oh, I mean, especially the last one. Jesus Christ. I mean, that awful haunted castle idea that he had as well. Oh, dear God. <laughs> Around this time. To be honest, it feels rather... Uh, because very shortly we're going to be revealing what our next episode is now. But given the recent Indiana Jones news and who is taking over that series, uh-huh. it seems uh, rather apt that we're moving from George Lucas yeah. to that now. Yeah, it does. <laughs> maybe that's something to discuss whether it'll happen or not i'm really not sure anymore that film just continually just seems to be over the horizon yeah i think indiana jones now i think the time has passed and especially with the current climate and given harrison ford's age and the fact Mm. that he is in the death zone when it comes to the coronavirus (laughs) and general like piloting abilities as well (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly yeah how many times has he crashed now i mean i know that pensioners are given a hard time for their driving ability <laughs> yeah. dear god harrison step away from the plane <laughs> i'm not too sure he should be driving a scooter at the moment a mobility scooter oh dear but yeah i cannot see this indiana jones film being made no i can see an indiana jones film being made but not one with harrison ford they're gonna have to reboot it i mean no matter how many people object to it, if they want to make another film, they're going to have to reboot it or just don't make the film because there's really no point at this stage. And to be honest, I don't particularly want to see an Indiana Jones film based in the 60s. Part of the charm of Indiana Jones is the period piece-ness yeah, of it. Yeah, being in the 30s. And, and yeah. the closer it gets to what's in like living memory, firmly within living memory, I'm like, I, I don't particularly want to see him against the counterculture or the uh, flower power hippies as the bad guys no. or anything like that. It's going to be like uh, Indiana Jones up against that devil weed. I mean, that that's just the general state of Lucasfilm at the moment, isn't it? It's just... <laughs> They're struggling with what to do with Star Wars. I don't think they really know what to do with any, everything Anything else. Anything Lucasfilm at the moment. Yeah. I feel like they've been given this sandbox and they've kind of rushed out with it and they're trying to play with every toy that they can within that sandbox all at once. Yeah. And they're not getting the most out of anything in there. No. So, and going back to Willow as well. So it wasn't a massive box office hit, but it did do modestly well. Then it was a big hit on home video is what I did read. But there are no figures as to how much of a hit it was on home video that I could find online. Just the recognition of it, which makes me think, I wonder why a sequel wasn't made, but perhaps just simply too much time had passed. And then the fantasy genre was always kind of regarded as one that was a dead genre, even after Willow. Although I do remember it being pretty omnipresent in your sort of blockbuster video stores. Yeah. It seemed to be around a lot in those sort of five years after its release. I think that's why I struggled to get hold of it, because I think it was available as like a rental but for the life of me, I remember for years I couldn't find it on VHS. And I remember that my mum was looking for it for me. And we couldn't find it on VHS. And when we did buy it from a charity shop, it was an ex-rental copy that we had mm. in one of those larger VHS <laughs> cases that you used to get. I don't know the, the facts about this, but perhaps it was it had some kind of, kind of rental exclusive thing over here for a while. Yeah, because I don't think I ever owned it on video. No. The DVD was the first time I actually bought the film. Oh, and the film's got a nice poster as well. That's oh, on, the, yeah, it does. on the VHS box as well. I do want to say that's a poster that makes me feel nostalgic whenever I see yeah. it. Yeah, 
they're the kind of posters that fantasy films should have. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I kind of wish we'd had a bit more of that with The Lord of the Rings rather than the photographic ones. Yeah, I will say that the poster legacy of The Lord of the Rings is not very well regarded. It's, it's very much of its time. Considering that the films that they are, the posters are very dull and generic. They just do the job. But yeah, going back to Willow, so... That's all the information that we really have on Willow. I think we've gone through the film enough, and now it's just time to to give our final thoughts. Do you have anything final to say about Willow? Your um, your experience, if it's something that you would recommend, I'd recommend watching the um, the Ebersis sequence because although it's got quite a few shortcomings, it's it's a very good example of go motion at its zenith. But I would say this and Dragon Slayer probably the best two examples of go motion. This at times is so good that it almost looks like a very good CGI thing. I, I imagine this is where they would have gone if they'd done Jurassic Park as a, a go motion film. Yeah. I think people were quite hard on the um, Jurassic Park stop motion because they were the animatics. Yeah. But I feel like if they'd gone into full production, it would have looked more like this, but maybe probably better. Far more polished, yeah. It wouldn't have been a, a stark contrast to the CG mm-hmm. that they ended up with in the end. I know that you've mentioned that the other film for Go Motion is uh, Dragon Slayer, which the, uh, and I will say the Go Motion now looks superb, but I will say that the best film for Go Motion for me is actually, in fact, Howard the Duck. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. has an incredible Go Motion monster at the end of it. Yeah, yeah. I was, <laughs> I was going to mention it, but then I was like, I think it's almost like overshadowed by its general weirdness and crapness. Yeah. And Robocop 2 as well, but it almost uses it a bit too much at the end. It exposes it a bit. Yeah, it's, it's like when CGI first became a thing, and rather than just using it for the scenes that it should be used, people got a little bit more ambitious and started using it in places that it perhaps shouldn't have been used. Yeah, it gets it gets a bit kooky when um, you see like animated Robocop bashing animated Kane on the head and stuff like that. I think that's the issue with that film is that it falls down that trap of having a little bit too much at its disposal in that way. But yeah, so... I'd agree that scene is great. For Willow, as mentioned, I would say that if you've got kids of a certain age, they're most likely going to love Willow, and it's one of those films that may open the door for them into the world of fantasy. And I will say that if it is a film from your childhood and you're thinking of rewatching it, perhaps don't. Perhaps just <laughs> think about it. Think about those memories. That That's what I had and they're gone now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know this is obviously originally going to be a Best Forgotten movie, and if we were still doing it in that format, I I would have to say it was Best Forgotten, unfortunately. It's done its job for its time, but it's time to let it die. (laughs) But of course they're not going to do that, because they're going to do a TV show. (laughs) Yeah, we'll be back to review the TV show next year. (laughs) Um, So that's everything Willow today. Now we're going to be moving on to what we're going to discuss for our next week's episode. I've already hinted at it with the uh, the mention of the director of the new Indiana Jones film. So it is a James Mangold film. And this is a film that I have chosen to review. And given that we've changed the uh, format on this podcast, we've rebranded it to Popcorn Digest. So I wanted to do another film that was more the type that we wouldn't discuss on here. And something instead from the last few years that I've highly regarded and would like to discuss in greater depth. And that film that we will be discussing is Logan, the final of the Wolverine films. And uh, perhaps if Fox had had any hindsight, it would have been the final of the X-Men films too. (laughs) But for now, it's uh, bye from myself, Gareth. And bye from me and the Knights Who Say Knee. Knee.